Well, have you ever had a bad boss? I wish you could see my view here. Everybody's like, yeah, I got one now. If your boss just happens to be in this room this morning, just, just play it off and take it easy. But have you ever had a bad boss? And by a bad boss, I just don't mean a person that you work for. But I mean a person that you may, may be a manager. It could be a leader on a group project. It could be even a pastor or a leader in any given church. But all of us, I'm sure, have had you know, a bad boss in some respect or another. And there's lots of different factors that can contribute to making a boss a bad boss. The person can be lazy. They can be indifferent. They can be emotionally unstable. They can be incompetent and a long list of other things. But I'll tell you, I've had a lot of bosses in my short time on this earth. And just a handful of them, just a handful of them were what I would consider good bosses. And all the things that I named, lazy, indifferent, emotionally unstable, incompetent, and the list goes on and on. I could really tolerate those things in a boss. It's not ideal, but I can tolerate those things. But the thing I could not stand about the bosses that I thought were particularly bad is that I never really knew where I stood with them. They never really get much feedback from them. I didn't know I was on strike three until I struck out for the third time. And if you've ever been in that position where you've just been cruising along either in a relationship or especially in an organization under a boss, under a leader, where you thought you were fine, where you thought you were hitting the right metrics, where you thought your productivity was high, and if not high, it was where it should be because you had heard anything different. And then you get that meeting, you know, some of us have been in that meeting where they bring the hammer down on you. And if you're like me, you say, man, I didn't, I did not know. And sometimes the bosses lack courage, sometimes they lack the self-awareness, sometimes they were just kind of, you know, more interested in being our friends. And then it, it, it just never knew where I stood with the bosses that I considered to be particularly bad. And it's been never a good thing to not know where you stand. And I made a promise to myself, and I made a promise to the people that I happen to be in charge of, the people that I happen to manage and lead, is that, hey, you may not like my style. You may not even agree with me every step of the way. But one thing you will know is you will know where you stand with me. You'll know where you stand with me. And I hope those that I lead would say that that rings true this morning. But if I could simplify for us this morning our relationship between uh, the relationship between us and Jesus, I think it might be safe to say and even simple to say that we work for Jesus. We work for him. He's our boss. I know you don't like to think of it that way. But Jesus is in charge of us, right? He's our master. Paul often says that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I know we don't like that word, but that puts it into perspective. And Jesus, thankfully, is one of the greatest bosses that we could ever have. He's one of the greatest masters that we could ever have, mainly because he's not lazy. He's not indifferent. He's not emotionally unstable. He's not incompetent. But the thing I love about Jesus and the thing that makes me so excited that he's in charge of my life is that I always know. I always know where I stand with him. Jesus always lets me know. He always lets us know, particularly if we have ears to hear where we stand with him. And this is true for the good, for the bad, and especially, especially the ugly. Today I have the privilege of continuing a a series that we started last week. And this series that we're simply calling Back to the basics. 
back to the basics. And last week I said that whether you're a seasoned Christian or you're a brand new Christian, it's equally important for us to focus on, periodically focus on the basics, the basics of our faith, the basic tenets, the basic statutes, the basic principles that make up our faith. And for those of us who've been doing this whole church thing for a long time, we can kind of get a little bit complacent. We can get, kind of get a little full of ourselves and feel like we've learned all there is to know. We know all there is to know. And we can slowly begin to drift away from the fundamentals and be lured away by the things that sparkle and glisten, particularly as it concerns our faith. And I know many of you here today are either returning to Jesus or have made new commitments to follow him. And for you, it's equally important to understand just what are the fundamentals of this thing? Just what are the basics of this thing? And it's for that reason that we're taking a look at this series, Back to the Basics, and we'll be journeying through the, the New Testament book of Romans, where Paul writes this, church, this letter to the church at Rome. And as I said last week, the mega theme or the big idea of the book of Romans is simply put the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And last week I read a quote by Wayne Grudem from his book, Systematic Theology. And Wayne Grudem says this, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. And that helps us understand that there's no wavering and there's no misunderstanding about the righteousness or the rightness of God. And in the life of the believer, we as Christians, we give, we give God, uh, we have this basic understanding that God is right. And not only is he right, he's the standard for what is right in this world. And some of us bristle at that because we like to have our options open. We don't like to be nailed down. We don't like to be pinned down. But God's righteousness is the mega theme of this book called Romans. And to humbly embrace God's standard and humbly allow him to impose that standard or his righteousness on us equals for us, the believer, successful Christian living. Functionality in every aspect of our life, oneness with God, rightness with him and rightness with those that we share this world with. And Paul tells us in this faithful book how to be right, how to be right with God, how to be right with ourselves, how to be right with others. And that's a big deal. If we can figure this out, how to be right with God, how we can be right with ourselves, how we can be right with others, we'll be headed in a very, very good direction. And last week, I just began this series by just the opening letter of this, uh, of this book where Paul just introduces himself. He establishes authority as an apostle, as a preacher, as a missionary to the Gentiles. Paul talks about how he's not ashamed of the gospel because he's seen the gospel transform hearts and transform lives all over the world. So he's it's with great confidence that he takes this same gospel and that same power to a regular, a rather secularized church in the Roman uh, Empire. Paul talks about the power of the gospel. And for this particular installment this week, what we're going to talk about, I've simply named this message, the problem and the solution. The problem and the solution. So Paul talks us through, you know, his introduction. And after, you know, those first few verses, he gets into the nitty gritty of what this whole faith deal is all about. And he does so by talking to us about our main problem, our biggest issue. Now, Paul talks a lot about the solution. He talks a lot about the good news. 
But I don't think we can really appreciate the good news unless we understand what the bad news is. We can't really appreciate the solution in Christ unless we understand fully what our problem is. And Paul unpacks that for us in the verses that we'll look at today. We'll look uh, at Romans chapter 1. We'll pick up at verse 18. We left off at 17 last week. We'll pick up at verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of your rows. Feel free to take one of those Bibles with you if you don't have a Bible at home. We'll also be projecting the scriptures on the screens in front of you. Let me pray before I begin this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. I thank you for your power. I thank you, Lord, that you just don't leave us floundering and flailing about, just wondering where we stand with you. Instead, Father, you speak life to us. You speak truth to us through your word. You speak truth to us through your preachers. You speak truth to us, Lord, through your precious Holy Spirit, God. And you say that if we have ears to hear, you will reveal yourself to us. And in revealing yourself, Father, you show us exactly where we stand. Good, bad, and ugly, especially the ugly, Lord. So I pray that you would open our hearts this morning so that we might hear and we might receive everything that you would have for us. Everything that you would speak, Lord, let us receive it. Take away any offense, take away any barriers, Lord, that will keep us from hearing and receiving. And God, I pray ultimately that you would cause us to not just hear today, but to respond in faith to what you've spoken. Put power on these words, Lord, that you've given me to speak. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, got a lot to share this morning, so let's get into it. Romans chapter 1, start at verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Way to start out this morning, right? Verse 19, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they didn't worship him, ask God, or even give him thanks. And they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they, made, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Verse 26, this is, what, this is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. Verse 27, and the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. It's interesting that he... Puts that on the list. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. 
They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. What a passage. And some of you thinking, man, I knew I should have stayed home today. But, you know, we start with the bad news. We'll work our way to the good news. And if you could just endure, we'll get to some better news here. But Paul here is laying out for us just a mouthful. A mouthful. And if you can picture this, I mean, I watch a lot of TV crime drama shows. It almost seems like Paul is like laying, making a case against us in a court of law. Almost sounds like he's laying out these indictments. And last week we talked about the good news, and we'll talk more about the good news and how the good news is the best news ever. But this week, I mean, right now we're reading the bad news, and this also happens to be the worst bad news ever. And we'll get to the solution. But Paul fleshes out the problem. What is the problem? What is the problem? Well, some of you can clearly see the problem is sin. The problem is sin. Whenever we start dealing with the brokenness and the fallenness of humanity, we'll never get away from dealing with the problem of our own sin. Or as someone else put it, the unrighteousness of humankind. Talk about the righteousness of Christ, the rightness of Christ. In our own sinful, selfish, natural state, we are unrighteous to the greatest degree. To the greatest degree. And I think this is helpful for us. It's hard to hear, but it's helpful for us because until you realize that you're a sinner, until you realize that you have a sin problem, until you realize that we are out of the box, broken, then you can't really appreciate God's saving grace. Say that again. Say, preacher, why are you always talking about this sin business? Why are you always shining the light of scripture and the light of truth on our sin? Because until we realize our need for a savior, until we realize and recognize that we're broken, that we're misshapen, that there's something wrong with us, then we won't appreciate the grace and the mercy and God's salvation that he pours out for us. And Paul brings charges against humanity in these verses that we've read. And he makes a couple of uh, strong assertions here. And I just want to jog through those before I get to what the solution is. We're talking about the problem. We're talking about our sin problem. And Paul accuses us, firstly, of suppressing the truth. He indicts them because they suppressed the truth. Verse 18, but God showed his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He continues, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And Paul deals with, in a sort of roundabout way, this kind of built-in excuse that we have. Well, well, nobody's ever presented a compelling message to me. I haven't really heard the gospel in detail, and the guy I heard it from didn't really make sense. So on those bases and several other bases, I can reject that God exists and that he wants anything significant from me in my life. And what Paul seems to point to is the 
obviousness of creation. The obviousness of creation. Psalms 19 and 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. And Paul seems to be saying this, even if a preacher didn't make his way to you yet, and even if he has, if the message wasn't that good, if he didn't capture your attention or he didn't quite sell you on the gospel, didn't quite sell you on this whole idea that God is real and that he's in charge and that he's powerful. Paul says, did you walk outside and see that everything exists? Walk outside and see, behold the majesty of the skies and the sun and the trees and the ecosystem and the human body of how it cures itself and how these systems work together. He says, listen, who do you think did that? And who do you think did that? And in case you don't know for sure, you know, I would spend the rest of my life tracking that guy down. And whenever I find him, I'm going to bow down and worship him. Paul talking about the obviousness of creation. Paul says we can clearly see his invisible qualities. And those two phrases don't even seem like they belong in the same sentence. But Paul disagrees. Paul says it's obvious that there's a God. And my suspicion is that Paul doesn't buy that they haven't heard the message by now doesn't buy that the combination of beholding creation and seeing God's goodness each and every day through creation, Paul basically says, you guys are without excuse. And he therefore accuses them of not knowing the truth, but knowing the truth to some degree, but suppressing it, suppressing it because they want to do something different. They want a better way. In their own utter foolishness, they thought themselves wise. They thought they knew a better way. They thought they knew a more comprehensive way to achieve God's best without, well, going through God. And through our own desire and our own broken need to be in charge, which is the essence of our sinfulness, we suppress and we beat back the truth of who God is and what he wants through our own selfish, sinful wickedness. And Paul says the, obvious, the obviousness of creation leaves us without excuse. Without excuse. Paul continues in verse 21 to suggest that one of the main reasons that we're on the hook, one of the main problems with our brokenness and our selfishness and our sinfulness is that we make idols. He accuses them of making idols. And in the 21st century Western world, we really have to sort of contextualize that word because in the ancient worlds, idols actually meant idols, you know, like shrines and little things that people fashioned and they worship. But for us, it means, it might mean something different. I mean, people still worship shrines and idols and different trinkets and things like that. But for us, it's, it's a little different for us. But Paul accuses them and therefore accuses us because we're also broken, sinful humanity of making for ourselves idols. Verse 21, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they begin to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their mind became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and things and reptiles, right? 
So instead of worshiping the creator, which Paul clearly points to the fact that they beheld creation, they beheld the majesty and the splendor of creation each and every day. But instead of worshiping the creator, they turned their eyes to creation. Instead of worshiping the creator, they turned their eyes and therefore they turned their hearts to the created things. And before we shake our fingers at them, we realize that Paul is talking to us. And I'm sympathetic to this notion of idolatry because, well, it's hard to see God, right? We can see him with eyes uh, that are tuned to see him, eyes of our hearts and the eyes of our spirit. But this thing gets really hard because, you know, you can't really see God. Can't really have a cup of coffee with him. You can't grab a hold of him like some of you want to grab a hold of him. Can't really see him. But you can see that person that you're enamored with. You can interact and interface with those things that call out to us. And Jesus knows and God knows and Paul knows that this is going to be an issue for us. In the very first commandment, make, you know, worship no other gods but me. Have no other gods before me. He knew that this would be a problem. And the indictment that Paul lays on us is that we make and we've made idols. And I think uh, for us, we have to ask the question in the 21st century West, what do we worship? I don't mean, you know, us as a group here, but I mean, I want to break this down individually today. What do you worship? What idols have you made? What idols have you made? What things have you fashioned? What of God's creation have you replaced him with? And I think until we can answer that question honestly, and to do the hard work of figuring out what our idols are, we can't even begin to unpack the nature of our individual specific sin issues. And some of you today, just as I say idols, some of you, some things flood to your mind. Those things that you just can't or won't do without. Those things that are more important to you than the creator. Those things that you pursue longer and harder than God's plan and his purpose for your life. Those are your idols. Those are the things that you worship. Those are the things that we put our hope in. And as I said several months ago, what you hope in, you will worship. And that's why the Lord says, put your hope in me, put your trust in me. Because as you hope and as you long, as you pine after seeing God's glory revealed in your life, you will worship him because you realize that's your source. In the same way, the things that you put your hope in, those idols, those things, those people, those places, those, those ideals... You will hope in those, and therefore you will worship those to the destruction of your life. What do you worship? And some of us, if we were to answer honestly, we'd say we worship food. We have eating issues. We, we, we go to food for comfort. We worship it. And when those cravings call out to us, we'll stop everything and we'll go get it. We'll spend money that we don't have. We'll destroy our bodies and our health and our futures because foods are God. Some of us, it's sex. It's sex. And all of the things that surround it. And we'll forfeit God's best for us because that thing is in the driver's seat. We'll forfeit God's best for us 
because we just want a little action. And like I said, the surrounding things, the implication of an unhealthy outlook on sex and how it distorts relationships and how it destroys marriages and how it breaks up families and how it saddles you with a lifetime of baggage that you bring into each and every relationship that you carry. Sex being an idol is highly destructive and it's one of Satan's greatest tools. And all the tentacles of that, pornography, some of us hooked on pornography, up late at night, all night. You look back, you looked up and six, seven hours has passed and you're just in the zone, man. Some people are so bound by these pornographic things that they can't even relate to human beings, can't even be stimulated by a, a human being anymore. Why? Because these idols have taken hold. Some of you, it's social media. Don't giggle because these things become idols. These things become gods. For some of us, it's vanity and beauty. For some of us, it's being thought well of. For some of us, it's church. It's church. It's whatever position you hold, whatever prestige that you might gain from being a servant of the Lord. For some of you, it's your idea of success. And for a great many of us, particularly Christians, our idols are, you know, I just call it the ideal circumstance, whatever that is for you. And some of us have even made these ideal circumstances and elevated it to the position where we use these as sort of bargaining tools for God. And God, if you do this, when you unlock this in my life, then I'll get serious about this. Lord, when you send me, you know, a husband, because I've been waiting a long time, I've been faithful to you, I've been keeping myself. When you unlock this, then, then I'll give all of, you, uh, all of me to you. God, when you, when, you, when you move me into this career where things are rocking and rolling, then I'll get serious about serving, then I'll get serious about giving, then I'll throw my life into this thing. But until you do this, God, I've, I've, I've worked hard for this, I've sacrificed for this, I've been good to you, Lord. Until you do this, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll get rocking and rolling. I heard a guy say that whatever you put in that blank, whatever this is, that's your God. That's your idol. That's what you bow to. And the thinking has become so distorted that we we bring God into this mess and we try to bargain with him with our idols. What do you worship? What do you worship? The indictment against us is that we've rejected God and we've made for ourselves new gods. New gods. Paul goes on in this passage to tell us how God responds to this sinfulness. How he responds to our brokenness. How he responds to our suppressing the truth and our embracing idols. Paul puts it clearly that God gave them over to their sin. He gave them over to their sin. And the word specifically that Paul uses is that God abandoned them to their own sin. He abandoned them to their own sin. I want to reread this because I think it's very important. Verse 24, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created 
instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Verse 26, and that's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men did the same in verse 27. Verse 28, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things which should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they, dis- they, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises and are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do so. This is the result, friends, of God's, I mean, this is God's response to us. This is God's response to us. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't say, as a result of their idolatry, as a result of their suppressing the truth, God unleashed plagues of, you know, toads and he caused famine, and he caused disease and he, you know, hurled lightning bolts at them. God did all this activity. What Paul says is that what God did instead in response to their sinfulness is that God just, he did nothing. He did nothing. He took his hand off of their life. Just pull back his grace a little bit. And oftentimes we see that God's wrath is shown through his inaction. And you didn't know just how much God was preventing and how much grace he had on your life until he stepped away. You thought that you were just real slick and that you had figured out a way to beat God's system. And so you kept doing it, and you kept doing it, and God kept being merciful, and he kept forgiving you, and he kept sending somebody to say, hey, listen, you're traveling wrong, and you kept thinking, listen, I'm slick, I got this covered, I'm the dude that figured out how to beat God's game. And finally the Lord said, okay, you got this. You're slick. Let's see what happens when I just step back. Let's see what happens when I just, I just remove my hand. Let's see what happens when I just let you indulge in the things that you think are just so sweet and so harmless and so fun. Let me just let you see. Let me just let you taste what it looks like when I remove my hand. And let sin run its natural course, which always terminates in death and destruction. Always. There's no strand of sin that doesn't lead there. Okay? Jesus says, let me just show you what happens when I let sin run its natural course. When I let the consequences of your own sinfulness and stuff, when I just let those just come to bear in your life, let me just show you what that looks like. And he reveals to them what happens. And what Paul describes is that they go deeper and they go deeper. And they go deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin. Deeper and deeper into their idols. Deeper and deeper into destruction. And he describes for us what happens is all these things, all these things just consume them as he just steps back and does nothing. As he just abandons them. And that's why the word death 
in a spiritual sense, is just so it's, it's, it's so detrimental to us as followers of, God, of, of Christ. Because what death means is spir- a spiritual separation from God. That's what uh, Adam and Eve uh, experienced in the garden. Separation from God. That's what God's people experienced after they kept going and going and going in their own direction. They experienced a spiritual death. What did the Lord just say? You know what? I've had enough of this. I'm going to let you see how deadly this is. How deadly this is. And Paul spends a lot of time in this particular passage as he's unpacking all of this negative stuff. He spends a lot of time dealing with the issue of, of homosexuality, of homosexuality. And I don't have time to fully unpack that, but I've learned as a young preacher that, you know, in the cultural climate that we live in today, this is one of those hot button issues. And no longer do I assume that people who consider themselves Christian allow God's word and his scripture to be the full authority on their understanding and how they view the culture around them. So I don't ever want to get in the habit of going around difficult texts. You don't want a pastor that does that, trust me. But Paul speaks to this. And he doesn't speak favorably about this. And since I don't have time to unpack this today, I'm going to challenge those of you who might disagree with this presentation of how God views homosexuality, I'm going to challenge you to stay put. And what I mean by that is that the easy thing to do is to get angry. The easy thing to do is to leave in a huff. The easy thing to do is to make assumptions without talking to somebody, without talking to me, without finding out where we stand on this and finding out God's heart about it. That's the easiest thing to do. And I've had people do that. They've heard a sentence or two and they just said, I'm out of here. These guys don't. They, they hate gay people. That's not where we're coming from. I'm challenging you to do the hard work if you're interested in coming to talk to me. And doing the hard work of going on our website, there's a, there's a sermon on there called, What About Homosexuality? It was done last summer. It gives you a comprehensive picture of what we believe our disposition toward the gay community should be and what God's disposition is. And I'm sure that if you have a negative opinion of the church and how, you know, the outworking of our relationship with the LGBT community, it will change your perspective and soften your heart toward. So I'm challenging you, just as an aside, to do the hard work this morning and to not make assumptions. But what I like most about this passage is that Paul talks about homosexuality and how deviant it is, but Paul doesn't fail to deal with everything else. There's a real long list of everything else. Paul says, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They are promise breakers. They are heartless, and they have no mercy. And in case you want to really get down on those that practice homosexuality, just, just chill for a second, because there's something in here for everybody. There's something in here for everybody. And one of the worst things that we can do as followers of Jesus, one of the worst things that I could do as a preacher is begin to elevate certain sins over others. Let's begin to say, like, well, these are all pretty bad, but if you do this one, then, you know, there's a special chamber, you know, in hell that's a little hotter than the rest of it. <laughs> but if you do this stuff, then we'll work with you, and we'll just kind of, we'll just work with you. We're all, you know, pressing on. But if you do this, 
you know, maybe we'll sit you, and you can sit in your car, and we'll bring you a CD of the message, you know, afterwards. Then my Bible didn't read that way. Scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. And if you think you haven't, you're in worse shape than we originally thought. Paul deals with this stuff. And whether you're struggling with homosexuality or whether you're struggling with any of this other long list of things that Paul uh, had lists for us, I mean, the, the, the truth is the same. We all need something other than ourselves because the decisions that we've made are best thinking, our best reasoning, our best plotting and strategizing have got us in the mess that we are and that is far from the Lord. His hand is off of our lives and we're sailing down the thing and we're about to fall over the cliff. All of us, no matter what our issue is. And what's more is that if we continue to go that way, as many of us have chosen to, things will get worse and worse and worse and worse. And on the horizon, there is a point of no return where either you physically die or you get so far away. You get so numb. You're so broken that um, you just, you've just lost interest. You just lost interest. You're breathing to death, essentially. And some of us are very close to that. We hear Paul's words. We hear him talk about our problem. We hear him, you know, lay down these indictments. And we realize that we're guilty. We realize that there's no defense that we can mount that could get us out of this. There's no way we can explain these things away. We realize that we are a royal mess. And if I were to stop the message here, I mean, you'd have cause to be very, very depressed. I mean, where's the hope in that? Preacher, give us some good news. Redeem this thing. Okay, I just got a few more minutes. If sin is the problem, sin is the problem, what then is the solution? What then is the solution? So we hop all the way over to Romans chapter 3. Turn there real quick. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. There's some stuff in the middle, but we'll unpack that next week. Romans chapter 3, I'll start at verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him. Now we're getting somewhere. To be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the laws, referring to the Mosaic law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. We are made right with God, not by shaking the preacher's hand, not by signing up on the membership roll, not by writing a nice big check, although we like those. But you are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, that's good news. And this is my favorite part. For everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. Amen. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Specifically, people who sinned before Jesus came on the scene. Believers that sinned before Jesus came on the scene. This shows that 
that God was being fair when he did not hold back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. We can boast then that we have done, uh, we have not, excuse me, that we have done anything, excuse me, I'm, can we boast then, there we go, that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well, then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. So what does Paul do for us today? He talks to us first about our issue, about our problem. And when he lays it out, it almost seems insurmountable. It seems so heavy. We're so guilty. We don't have a defense. What's the way out of this? How can we pay the debt that we owe for, to God for our rebellion, for our suppression of the truth, for our erecting idols in our life of all kinds? How can we, how can we pay for this? How can we turn the ship around if we're heading for destruction and going deeper and deeper into our own sin? There's no way that we can fix this on our own. And then Paul presents this. He shows us a way that we can achieve and that we can receive what we need most. And that is to be right with God. And Paul tells us in very specific terms that Jesus is the solution. That Jesus is the solution. And that through faith, if we would believe in Jesus, if we would lean the full weight of our life on him, not in just this sort of, you know, ambient sort of belief. I think that there's a Jesus. I kind of believe. I kind of think he was a good guy. I'm talking about belief that puts your life where your words are. That slides all the chips in and you double down on Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm sliding it all in here. It's the essence of what it means to be a person of faith, to put your hope and your life and your times in his hands through faith. Then he tells us, listen, nobody's perfect here. We all have sin. And Paul includes himself in that. And I include myself in that. And I want to talk to you as as a preacher who misses the mark, who's a flawed human being. And I'm not saying, hey, come up here where I am. I'm saying, let's go together to the throne of the Lord. Let's go together. Because what Jesus has for us, all of us needed. If you ever hear a preacher telling you that he's arrived and he's perfect, doesn't say, or that she's perfect and she's arrived, listen, you, you run out of there. You run out of there. Because he's lying. She's lying. Paul says, we all have sinned. And fall short of God's standard, but God, through his undeserved kindness, his mercy, his grace, his second chance, he makes us right with him. And as I said last week, God takes his righteousness, his rightness, and he deposited it into our account. So when God looks at us, what he sees is not our brokenness, what he sees is not our past, what he sees is not our flakiness and our unfaithfulness, what he sees is the righteousness that's been deposited in our account.
Listen, we talked about a fresh start a couple weeks ago. How many of us wouldn't kill for a fresh start? To not have our sins counted against us. Now, that may not work in a natural sense because we tend to have, as humans, long memories. Right? And if you've offended somebody and you've done somebody wrong, they'll probably go to the grave. Probably every time they see you, they'll remind you of it. They'll probably put little subtle coded messages on Facebook just to remind you that they haven't forgotten what you've done. But in the grand scheme, when we consider what matters most, what if the God who determined where your soul ended up, when he looked at you, all he saw was his righteousness? All he saw was somebody who resembled, strange resembled, his strange resemblance to his son. Jesus, is that you? No, that's Tony. Jordan, is that, is that my son? Jesus? No, that's, that's my boy Jordan. He's righteous. He's clean. He's new. Come on in, son. Talk about identity. And talk about a fresh start. I mean, that's good news. And that's cause to worship. That's cause to worship. But that's the destination. And many of us, many of us are simply not there today. And when I read these words of Paul, when I take them in, I, basically what I hear Paul is saying is, hey, you've got to be a fool. You've got to be a fool to leave this on the table. You've got to be a fool not to just snatch this up and just completely take it in. And you can't get these type of deals anywhere. And this is a steal. And this is a bargain. And I ask you today, worship team, you can come up. Well, where are you at today? You know, where are you at today with this? Where are you? Are you just struggling and scraping along, just, just surviving, sinking deeper and deeper into your sin? Are you thinking that you're the slick one and in just a matter of time, you're going to figure out a way to, to, to be God's system? That the consequences of your own sin and rebellion won't come to bear in your life? And some of you are here today and you can really testify to this, this reality that God has just sort of backed up from you a little bit. Just allowed you to see that you can't do this on your own. Allowed you to see that sin is real and that it will kill you. And he's just waiting for you to say, hey, I tap out. I tap out. You were right. Come get me, Lord. Come get me. Where are you at today? And some of you, you've, you, 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 you've given your heart to him and you, you've got this deep and burning faith, but you just, you just need a little kick. You need a little boost today. You need a little top off today because circumstances and the stress and the disappointment of life has started to, starting to press in on you. I tell you what, wherever you, wherever you are today, this message reaches you. This grabs a hold of you. There's hope here today. And Jesus wants to touch you. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are. So my prayer for us is that we, as we worship the Lord through music and through song, that the Holy Spirit would just begin to form us. The Holy Spirit would just begin to speak to us, man. The Holy Spirit would just begin to illuminate just the floodlight of his truth on every area of our life, just revealing everything that needs to be dealt with. And that the power of his Holy Spirit would make us new today. It would make us new. Does that sound like a good idea? Hey, we're going to tackle more of this next week, but let me just pray as we enter a time of worship. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much, God, that you don't leave us stranded and stuck. 
And though we've all sinned and though we've all missed the mark and though we've all erected idols for ourselves, Lord, you still want us. You still want us. You still want something to do with us, Lord. You still have a plan and a purpose for our life. You still don't leave us lonely and floundering. You don't judge us, Lord. And that's good news today. God, we accept your solution. We accept your mercy. We accept your grace. We accept the work of the cross. And we say changes, Lord. So, God, as we worship you in this place today, as we give you glory, honor, and praise, would you change us, Lord? Would you form us? Would you make us look like your son, Jesus? We thank you in advance for all that you will do in our lives and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.